Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples, and we're joined by RTB founder Hugh Ross. We'll say hello to you, Hugh. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Glad to have you on the podcast. Regular listeners will have observed the noticeable absence of Dave Rogstad's voice on the podcast. And if you've followed RTB, you know that Dave is now rejoicing in the presence of his Savior. Uh, Ken, Dave was a special person to so many people, and we wanted to take time to remember him on this podcast. So I'll let you provide some introductory comments, uh, Ken, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I think that, uh, Joe, uh, you and I and Dave have been doing um, the Straight Thinking, now Clear Thinking podcast, I think all the way back to 2011. So every Tuesday, virtually every Tuesday morning, Dave would walk into my office and want to talk about uh, the book he's reading or things of that nature. And he was not only uh, an excellent scholar, as as Hugh is going to tell you today, but he was a very godly man, um, uh, you know, a, a person that so many of the scholars here looked up to. And so we want to give a tribute. And I think the best way of doing that is to allow Hugh to talk a little bit about his early friendship with Dave and Dave's involvement with RTB. So, Hugh, it's it's great to have you on the Clear Thinking podcast. Yes. And I first met Dave and uh, I remember the day. January 4th, 1973. Wow. Uh, that's when I uh, got off the airplane from uh, Toronto after finishing my PhD and I began my post as a research fellow in radio astronomy. And I remember arriving at the Caltech astronomy department and there was one really weird guy. <laughs> that was Dave Rogstad. He was clean cut. None of the rest of us were clean cut. After all, I mean... I would get a haircut every six months, whether I needed it or not. <laughs> like, why waste time on haircuts? And you You're know, talking about the 1970s, after all. <laughs> That's right. And uh, you know, why waste money on clothes uh, when a t-shirt and a pair of shorts is all you really need uh, to work <laughs> in the astrophysics department? But there was this one guy in our group that really stood out, and that was Dave Rogstad. And uh, people told me that uh, he was a Christian, and I was a Christian. And so, but I had seen some of these clean cut Christians before in Canada. You know, my experience in Canada, uh, I studied a Gideon Bible for two years uh, in complete isolation, came to the point where I realized this had to be the inspired inerrant word of God, signed my name in the back of that Gideon Bible, committing my life to Jesus Christ. But I also recognized that I was committing my life to sharing my faith with people who are not yet believers. So I began to do that. And uh, I tried to find uh, Christians. There's not that many of them in Canada compared to the U.S. And uh, what I quickly discovered is that the few Christians that are tend to isolate themselves. Mm. I mean, you know, people make stories about the Amish, for example, here in the U.S. That's typical of the really committed Bible-believing Christians they exit the cities and form their own little communities outside the cities. And, you know, I'd always been either in downtown Montreal, downtown Calgary, downtown Vancouver, or downtown Toronto. 
And now those are places where it's really challenging uh, to find Christians. I would go into churches, uh, but the churches I went into, uh, you know, not even the pastor believed the Bible was the word of God. Mm. And I remember as I was finishing up my PhD and getting ready to come to Caltech, I got frustrated. I said, I need to find uh, Christians uh, who are committed to share their faith. And so I went through the Toronto Star on a Saturday. They have three pages of religion ads, went through those ads and said, okay, surely there's a Bible-believing church somewhere in these three pages. And I did find some that made a big point about how fervent they were about the Word of God. So I said, oh, I'm going to check those churches out. They turned out to be cults. So <laughs> I kind of gave up. It's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to find Christians in churches. So, but I came to Caltech and uh, I met this guy, Dave Rogstad. And what I heard about him is that he not only believed the Bible, he lived the Bible. Mm -hmm. And astronomers appreciated that he always left the telescope in better condition than what he found it. And so I said, well, yeah, I want to have that reputation too. So I made it a point uh, to follow Dave's example and also realize that he had a real servant's heart. I mean, he he's a brilliant coder. He could write this software uh, and very skillfully and very rapidly, but he would write a lot of software for the benefit of the other astronomers in the department. I mean, not a lot of people know this about Dave, but he's responsible for writing the software for a program called Clean. And uh, what that does is it allows us radio astronomers to take data from a variety of radio telescopes that we link together as interferometer. And uh, you know, ideally, you separate the radio telescopes so that you actually fill in the entire volume of the separation. Uh, as the Earth rotates. But of course, that's extremely time uh, intensive. And so Dave wrote this software where he said, look, what if we just sample 10% of the total volume between the telescopes, and I'll write this software that basically cleans everything else up. And so we discovered, hey, uh, we can get by with a lot less observing time and get just higher quality of data. People to this day, uh, used Dave's software that he wrote back wow. in the early 1970s. And uh, of course, uh, a lot of people are aware he's famous for saving the Galileo project, uh, where the major antenna on that uh, Martian mission uh, failed. And all they had was a small antenna. And Dave said, no problem. We'll pull together the biggest radio telescopes and the NASA network around the world. He wrote software. Uh, to integrate those telescopes so that even with that feeble signal coming out from that tiny antenna uh, on that uh, Mars uh, lander, they were able to get data. And he's done that with a number of other missions uh, where one or more of the antenna failed. He's found a way to amplify uh, the data. And, uh, you know, my Sunday school class, Paradoxes class that I teach every Sunday, I gave a a tribute to Dave, uh, literally the uh, two days after he had passed, uh, day after he passed, actually. And this past Sunday, I had his son, Steve, uh, mm. give a tribute. And, uh, you know, Steve told the story of how uh, 
his dad was responsible for his jet propulsion research group. Uh, but then Dave went into uh, retirement. He still worked a day a week. He worked a day a week at Reasons. He worked a day a week at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He did that up to the time of his death. I mean, after all, Ken, you can remember, literally just nine days before he passed, he was in our office and uh, his mind was sharp as ever. And he was engaging us in philosophical and theological debates. Yeah. And I heard that happen right up to the time uh, that he had uh, died. Uh, Hugh, let me let me interject with a question. You've covered a lot of ground already, uh, taking us back to 1973. You met Dave at Caltech, but then you've been talking about his career at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So can you talk about uh, that as well, uh, about his career, how long he was at JPL? Well, when I met him, uh, he was a senior research fellow in radio astronomy. He had just come back from Holland, where he'd done a postdoctoral research uh, fellowship. And uh, talking to Dave, his goal was to become the director of the Owens Valley Radio Observatory uh, up in the Owens Valley uh, near Big Pine. He thought that'd be a perfect place to raise his young children, uh, you know, get them out of the city and... Uh, but that never materialized. And uh, so he wound up transferring from Caltech to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And uh, what was good about that is he, he made, made twice as much money. And so, <laughs> well, I mean, he had a growing family and it was a financial stress yeah. uh, to sustain that family. Because, you know, everybody thinks that Caltech pays well. Not the case. <laughs> They, because of its reputation, they know they can get anybody they want. Mm. And so they don't have to pay people. I, I mean, I got paid adequately, uh, but I could have made a lot more money if I went to another institution. And uh, Dave says, well, you know what? I'm stuck in the LA basin, but I'm actually uh, making more money. And I'm still able to engage because the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, hires research astronomers. So it's like he never really had to leave his science. He was able to continue uh, that work. But the story I was gonna tell is that when he did retire and became part-time at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, they put his son, Steve, in charge of his research group. Mm. So in the last several years, uh, Steve's, uh, Dave's son was Dave's boss. So there you go. Steve told the story of the interesting transition of having his dad as his boss and then being the boss of his dad. So yeah. that's you know, consistent was, with, uh, sorry, Ken, that's consistent with Dave, though, uh, submitting himself and being yeah. a humble servant, to, you know, wherever he went. We saw that constantly at RTB. Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, you know, Dave had a, a way about him that you kind of you didn't know how good a scientist he really was. I mean, when he was at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, he received uh, NASA's Exceptional Service Medal. And, you know, he, as Hugh, you mentioned, I mean, he was involved in, in rescuing that mission. Um, but what was funny is Dave was in many ways just kind of a normal everyday guy. And you know, he loved theology. He he had a passion for the Bible and, 
you know, all of us, I think all of the scholars here at RTB kind of look at him as a mentor. Um, you know, he, he was always interested in what was happening in your life. And uh, uh, Hugh, I wonder if you tell a little bit about how uh, how you came to know Kathy through Dave Rogstad. Yeah, I'll do that. But, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of a backstory. Yeah, I remember uh, back in 1973, Dave walked into my office and saw a Bible on my desk. And uh, I had a Christian book on my desk. And so he said, are you a real believer? And I said, yes. And I said, how about you? Because I was worried about Dave, uh, <laughs> a real believer. Because uh, And my concern was, okay, maybe he's one of these isolated Christians who just kind of, and but I found out that Dave was actually passionate about sharing his faith uh, with the astronomers and engineers there in our department. Mm -hmm. So we quickly became allies in that respect. And I credit Dave because, you know, I've been searching uh, for a Christian and Dave kept telling me, look, Hugh, I know you've been disappointed with churches in Canada, but it's different here in the United States. There's Christians everywhere. And the Christians don't all isolate themselves. And so I remember he gave me a list of six churches in the Pasadena area. He says, these are all Bible-believing churches. They're all committed to reaching unbelievers for Christ. So I didn't have a car. I had a bicycle. So I just biked around to those six churches. and kind of watched how people behaved as they walked in and walked out. And I said, hey, they're bringing Bibles with them into church and notebooks. So that impressed me. Yeah. And I would go into the different churches. But I wound up picking the church that uh, Dave went to. Because I went there purposely on a Sunday where I knew Dave wouldn't be there. He was on an observing run. Because I wanted to see it for myself uh, without Dave's bias. And I walked in. And the first thing I saw uh, was this uh, you know, hippie with long, unkempt hair a dirty white t-shirt and shorts and bare feet. And uh, he was holding a hymnal with a businessman in a three-piece suit uh, wow. who was about 20 years older than he was. And I looked at the two of them. They were talking to one another. Obviously, they enjoyed one another's fellowship. I said, they've only got one thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ. They got nothing else in common. <laughs> and I said, this is a church I want to check out. Because... <laughs> uh, you know, that's something I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. So I, I got involved in that church. And, uh, you know, I wanted to live the moral standard that I saw Dave living. My problem in Canada is that, you know, I met other Christians. And, uh, you know, their walk uh, was pretty shabby. I was not impressed. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, well, you know, I'm doing better. Uh, but then I met Dave and I said, oh, Here's a standard of Christianity I've never seen before. And I was really attracted to that. And I remember talking to Dave and saying, you know, I've never met anybody like you. And uh, so, and, you know, he was encouraging me in, in different studies of the Bible. Uh, in fact, at that church, uh, I wound up joining uh, Dave's adult class in the book of John. So, and, you know, Dave and I would talk about his teaching uh, but then he came to me one day and said, you've been attending my class for three months. Uh, the church pastors and leaders, they want you to teach a class. 
Wow. So I said, okay, I'd be happy to do that. And I thought I was going to be teaching, you know, maybe grade four, grade six, maybe the junior hires. And uh, then they said, no, no, no. They want you to teach an adult class. Kids are welcome, but they want you to teach an intergenerational class. That was the birth of the Paradoxes class mm -hmm. back in 1974, the spring of 1974. And I've been teaching that class uh, ever since. Wow. So, uh, and, you know, Dave uh, introduced me to some new Christians in the church. Uh, and they, because basically Dave says, look, there's this guy from Caltech. His whole background is sharing his faith uh, with non-Christians. Uh, you got lots of non-Christian friends. He can help you. So I remember, uh, you know, visiting uh, these uh, young couples who had just given their lives to Christ. They would invite all their non-Christian friends over for dinner. And we would see five, six, eight or nine of them come to Christ uh, in those hmm. encounters. Boy. And they wanted me to leach, lead a Bible study. So very quickly, I was not only teaching the Paradoxes class, I was teaching two home Bible study groups uh, to new believers. And uh, we literally saw dozens of people come to faith in Christ. And it got to a point, and then we said, you know, uh, I noticed that people in that group are passionate about their neighborhood. I said, well, why don't we just go door to door and talk to them? Uh, let them see your passion. Uh, but I said, we're not going to mention our church. Uh, we don't want to have any ulterior motives. We're just going to go there. And I said, you know, we need resources. So I made it a point to uh, write about, you know, I basically developed a whole stack of pamphlets. As I said, you know, when we visit these people, they're going to be asking us questions. They're not going to remember everything we say. And we need to leave material with them. But I made it a point, no advertising on the material, no mention of our church. It was just uh, focused material. And I trained people saying, um, give them material that's specific to the questions they're asking. Don't dump a pile of stuff on them. You want to select it. People appreciate it if they know that you're focusing on their specific issues. So I, I equipped all the people going door to door, the big stack of papers. But I said, you want to choose from that stack. But people would ask, what else is in that stack? <laughs> so we would tell them, oh, I want that too. I want that too. And uh, literally every Saturday, we would go door to door. At least one, if not several people, would commit their life to Jesus Christ. Wow. And I write about it in the book that we sell, uh, Always Be Ready about those days but i remember talking to dave and saying dave things are happening you need to join us and i remember him saying i don't go door to door and <laughs> saying well why not all these new christians are going door to door mm -hmm. so uh i got dave to join us too but i realized his real gift is uh teaching teaching people who are uh, believers in jesus christ and I said, Dave, I've been asked to lead two more Bible studies. I can't do that. Uh, would you be willing? So I put them in charge of Bible study groups. I focused on the groups that were more interested in bringing non-Christians to faith, had him basically work on the groups that wanted to be uh, in-depth in the Word. So he got involved with that. And uh, we wound up with six Bible studies and uh, 
one neighborhood a few miles up from our church. And, uh, you know, so many people came to faith in Christ. We wound up planting a church in that neighborhood. And we recruited Dave uh, to be one of the founding pastors of that church. So that's Dave's background. But I can tell you this, if it wasn't for Dave, I wouldn't have been exposed uh, to what I now realize is real Christianity. I remember reading the book of Acts and saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had that kind of Christianity? Dave exposed me to that kind of Christianity. And so I realized, okay, we can add the book of Acts right now. And it was just a joy to see what you read in the book of Acts just flowing out in our everyday uh, ministries. And if it wasn't for me meeting Dave, that would have never happened. Uh, and there wouldn't be a reasons to believe. Wow. Because I remember uh, Dave uh, coming into my office at Caltech. And I said, the church has heard that you're on a J-1 visa and that you're preparing to leave the country. Because, yeah, I came to Caltech on the understanding I wouldn't stay more than three years. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just after the Vietnam War. And so they weren't too keen about Canadian academics staying Mm -hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. So I knew I was going to have to leave the United States. So I was making plans to return to Canada. I mean, I thought it'd be great to join the National Research uh, uh, Council in uh, Ottawa. Uh, I had invitations in the Britain and the Netherlands that I was looking at. But then Dave came into my office and said, the church has heard about the fact that you're leaving. They don't want you to leave. If we get you an H-1 visa, would you consider joining the ministerial staff of the church? And it was also that time, uh, what was about six months earlier, where Dave came to me and said, Hugh, I notice you spend all your time sharing your faith with these atheist astronomers and physicists here at Caltech. Have you ever thought about sharing your faith with non-scientists? I said, well, yeah, but where do you find them, Dave? They said, walk off the Caltech campus. <laughs> and he was shocked. I took him literally. I walked off the Caltech campus and just buttonholed strangers in the street. But I discovered what Dave was telling me is that the non-scientists are more receptive than the scientists. So mm-hmm. that's what really got me involved at the church. And uh, I remember when Dave asked me about uh, would I be consider staying in the U.S. I said, well, Dave, something I've been thinking about. It's an incredible thrill uh, to discover quasars at the edge of the universe. That was a time when there was only a few dozen of them that had been discovered. And I had the privilege of actually discovering some new ones. I said, it's nothing like the thrill of seeing someone give their life to Jesus Christ on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. I said, that quasar, maybe it'll last for a few billion more years, but we all know the universe is not eternal. Uh, It's headed for a heat death. But when someone gives their life to Jesus Christ, that has eternal impact. And I said, I actually get more joy out of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ than I do discovering quasars at the edge of the universe. So I told Dave, uh, tell the pastors at the church, I will take their offer if they can get me an H-1 visa. Hmm. And so it took a year to get that visa. Uh, but that's when I joined uh, the staff of the church. And uh, 
it was Dave a decade later that came to them and said, it's great that we got huge training, all the people in our church, how to use science to bring people to the book of scripture and into relationship with Jesus Christ. But the ministry he has at our church needs to impact more than just the Pasadena, California area. We need to help them take it worldwide. And that was the birth of reasons to believe. And uh, it was Dave that persuaded uh, the leaders at our church uh, that they needed to invest in launching reasons to believe. So uh, the church actually covered my salary for the first year. Uh, but they also told me, after that, you're on your own. Mm. And uh, that was a shock, because in that first year, we only raised $17,000. And uh says, looks like I'm going to have to pack things up. And they already replaced my position uh, on the church staff. So I was thinking, gee, maybe I'm going to have to find employment elsewhere. Uh, but God's hand was upon reasons to believe. I mean, out of the blue, uh, there was a veterinarian who gave us $50,000 literally a week before we were thinking we have to shut everything down. Wow. That was one of many miracles that God performed. And another miracle was we reached a point where I brought in some executive help and all of them were trying to lead the ministry in a different direction. And I said, no, we need somebody uh, that's actually going to maintain the vision of reasons to believe. You know, targeting STEM people, going after the people who don't, don't have a church background and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ, using the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture. And I heard about Dave's retirement party. And by the way, I heard uh, uh, from his son that what happened in his retirement party the atheist scientists here at the Jeff Propulsion Laboratory said, you know, if Dave doesn't retire, we're all going to become Christians. <laughs> no. uh, but when yeah, he retired, man. I came to him and said, Dave, uh, we need executive help from executives that are not going to try to steer the organization in a different direction. So the crucial point, uh, he was full time on our staff as an administrator, uh, but it was great because you know, he could work with our scholar team. Uh, Dave, Ken was the first scholar we brought on besides myself. And so, uh, Ken, you remember those days. Oh, yeah. Uh, when Dave joined our team and basically set the ship straight. Yeah. And I got it to a point where he says, look, I really want to retire. I don't want to work full time. How about if I work part time? And so he went down to part time status. Uh, but he said, one condition. I want to work with Ken on his podcast. So oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> I don't know whether I ever told you that, Ken, but he made that a condition uh, for staying part time on Reasons to Believe. Hmm. Well, he was, uh, I remember when he first came to Reasons, uh, boy, 23 years ago, I think, around then. But uh, tell us also, Hugh, a little bit about uh, him introducing you to your wife, Kathy. That That's a, an important. Well, you know, Dave, uh, he has this remarkable Christian character, but he's got a sly side to him, too. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Kathy, uh, their their pastor was not teaching that Sunday. So she and her mother said, you know, let's try this church we've been hearing about where all these people are coming to faith in Christ. So they wound up visiting the church where uh, Dave was attending 
And uh, they knew that Dave was in the Netherlands. So they were sitting down in the church. And then there was that point where people could greet one. And they turned around and there was Dave and his wife, Diane. And Dave says, yeah, I just came back from the Netherlands and I found this church and this is where I want to stay. And then he talked to Kathy and said, are you involved in a Bible study? And Kathy's comment was, look, Dave, I've tried these home Bible studies. Uh, you know, it's all singles trying to find a date. I'm not interested in that. And he says, no, no, no. I'm talking about a serious Bible study and where all the participants have to teach. They take turns teaching. And half the people in the study are studying to become full-time pastors and missionaries. This is a study I think you need to get involved in. And Kathy's comment was, I've heard about this before, you know. And so anyway, a week later, she got a call from Dave saying, I told them you're coming. And so <laughs> she got she got pretty angry at Dave. What mm. did you do? You promised that I would show up. He says, yeah, I did. So now she was obligated to come. But when she came, she said, everything Dave said about the study group is true. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she wound up getting involved. Uh, loved that, being able to participate in the teaching. And, uh, and they weren't all singles. Some of them were single, but a lot of the people were married. And he said, yeah, they're all committed uh, to become pastors or Bible teachers or missionaries. Well, about uh, nine months later, uh, Dave came to me and said, Hugh, there's a study group you got to go to. It's filled with all these young professionals who are trying to equip themselves uh, for full-time ministry, or some of them just want to be better Bible teachers in their churches. A lot of them are working with young life. And I said, Dave, I'm already teaching two Bible studies. I don't have time for another Bible study. And he says, well, Hugh, this is a study where all the participants have been raised in a Christian home. They've been isolated from non-Christians. You need to go there and train and equip them on how to reach people who are not believers, especially people who have had no church background, no exposure to the Bible, who don't know Christians. And again, I said, Dave, I just don't have time. And I really want to focus my efforts on these study groups that are filled with brand new Christians. Well, he did the same thing to me. Uh, he said, I told them you're coming. So, and I promised that you would show up. Uh, so I went there and uh, and after I'd been there, he said, uh, Hugh, did you meet somebody called Kathy? I said, well, there were three Kathys in the group. He said, describe them all to me. He kept saying, no, that's not the one I'm thinking about. That's not the one I'm thinking about. Turned out Kathy only came about half the time because uh, she was, you know, busy with all of her work at the University of Southern California. So, uh, but finally I did meet her uh, at the study. And uh, it was when uh, she saw me responding to some of the teaching there. And she came up and said, I can tell by the way you're dressed that you must be a scientist. And I said, yes. And <laughs> the people of the group said, Hey, where did you where did you get your clothes? Well, I said I buy my clothes at Lucky Supermarket. I says, yeah, we can tell. <laughs> oh boy. I said, yeah, mm. but I only paid three dollars for this pair of shoes and two dollars mm. and fifty cents for this pair of pants. So, uh, but uh, she said, I also noticed 
uh, yet you actually believe the Bible is true, even when it speaks about science. And she says, I doubt this brother who walked away from the Christian faith. Her brother was the youth leader in her church, uh, but he walked away from his faith when he decided to get a seminary degree. And uh, his professors were liberals and basically telling him uh, that you can't trust what the Bible says about science and history. So our comment is, what do you do with Genesis? So I said, oh, that was part of my conversion uh, story. It was looking at the early chapters in Genesis. Says, you got to tell me about this. And uh, I could tell right away that Kathy had a passion for seeing people come to faith in Christ. So I remember months later, uh, I got a phone call from her. And she said, you know, I've been talking to the leaders of our church about wanting to be trained in evangelism. And uh, they said, we don't have any training, uh, but they recommended you. Uh, the <laughs> pastors there knew who I was. And they said, yeah, yeah, we take people, we go door to door, we train them. So she said, can I come? And I said, definitely. Uh, and I knew she had been a Christian since she was, you know, five years of age. So I figured, oh, wow, now I got somebody who knows the Bible. So, uh, and then she showed up and said, okay, uh, where's the training? I said, well, it's on the job. Uh, <laughs> what we do is we put you out in the street and I'll team you up with a brand new Christian. And the training is that we come back afterwards and we discuss our experiences and figure out how we can improve the next time. She says, you mean there's no course? I said, well, no, this is the course. This is how we do it. So, but she said uh, she was really humbled by the brand new believers. People had only been a Christian for like three or four weeks and how passionate they were to share what little they knew about the Bible. And she said nothing else inspired her to learn more about the Bible. And uh, there was one time where she was teen with me and uh, we knocked on this one door and it was a Jehovah's Witness family. They invited wow. us in and uh, she saw me debating uh, the, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses there. And going back and forth, says every time they brought up a passage, you, you had two or three other passages to respond to them. It's like you had something that says, I need to know the Bible that well. And she basically said, look, uh, you've only been attending church uh, for less than a year. Uh, how did you learn the Bible like this? I said, it's easy. Uh, I just simply figure out the answers I need from the non-Christians. And it says, I cut my teeth at the University of Toronto and Caltech. There'd be these atheists there ridiculing the Bible. It says nothing like that ridicule that motivates you to study the Bible. And mm -hmm. so uh, bottom line was uh, Dave kept asking me about this gal, Kathy. Uh, so any claims that he didn't purposely match us, mm -hmm. but uh, we made him the best man at our wedding. Wow. Uh, he kept getting frustrated because he noticed we weren't dating. I told Dave afterwards, look, I'm not going to date as long as I'm on a J-1 visa. It wouldn't be fair for me to get into a relationship with a woman when I'm going to have to leave the country yeah. uh, in short order. So I waited till I knew I had a good shot at getting the H-1 visa uh, before asking Kathy out. But that was a challenge. I mean, I remember trying to uh, approach her and nothing was working. 
Uh, and I think you all know I'm on the autistic spectrum. So, so romance is not in my list of what I'm good at. So, and I couldn't tell if she was interested in me. There was just nothing there. Uh, so, and every time I tried, it just wasn't working. I finally sent her a letter. And uh, turns out that she had been interested in me all this time, but she had no idea I was interested in her. Uh, but sending that letter uh, made a difference. But here's what was funny. Uh, about um, 18 months before we went on our first date, the church leaders uh, came to me and said, Hugh, uh, we notice that you're really good at uh, helping people who have marriage problems. And I think it's because you're objective. You're not dating a woman. You're single. Uh, you know the Bible well. And uh, you can, and you're not bothered by people's emotions. If somebody starts crying, that doesn't bother you. You just kind of go straight to the intellectual points. So they said, we want you to be visiting people in our church with troubled marriages. And uh, they were the ones that encouraged me to uh, recruit Kathy uh, to go with me uh, to visit these couples in our church. And they liked Kathy because, you know, she wasn't dating anybody. And she was single. So, uh, and there was something about that objectivity that really helped people who, so we got to see a lot of marriages get repaired. Uh, but I remember there were four occasions where we were talking to a couple in their home and they would say, well, how long have the two of you been married? <laughs> <laughs> so they could see there was something going on. Mm. Uh, but, uh, so, and everybody. What in year are we talking family. about, Hugh? Well, uh, it was 1974 uh, when Kathy began to go with me okay. uh, to these uh, troubled couples. And then there was one Bible study where we had a lot of women uh, that came from uh, very promiscuous backgrounds. So I says, look, I can't help them. Uh, I need some women. Uh, to work with these. So I bet that was a rule I had. I'm not going to uh, counsel women in the studies uh, about anything about that nature of a relationship. I left that to the women. And Kathy was the best at it. And mm -hmm. so I recruited her for that task. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, we didn't uh, date until uh, 19, gee, it was, yeah, 1976. Which and I was already on the church staff at that point, uh, but that was a point where I knew I had a really good shot at getting the H one visa. So, and yeah. uh, so then we started to date, and uh, but everybody kind of everybody in our Bible study thought we were good for one another. Dave was very quiet about it, but he told me he'd been praying all that time mm. uh, that we would come together. So, so he was he was the best man in your wedding. He was. Well, Kathy's mother actually changed his diapers when he was a baby. Wow. Uh, so uh, Dave's family and Kathy's family went to the same church until he went to the Netherlands. So, okay. yeah, they had a long. So Kathy knew Dave from her childhood. Now, yeah. how long uh, do, do you know? approximately how long that Dave and Diane were married, how long they'd been married? More than 50 years, I'm sure. Well, let's see. Uh, he was uh, 22 when they got married. 
So uh, that yeah. means they had been married for 61 60, years. 61 years. Wow. Yeah. You know, Hugh, one of the things that I really admired about Dave was, uh, you know, he here here's a man who's had a prestigious career, um, went to one of the elite uh, math science schools and ultimately worked for NASA at the JPL. Um, but he often would convey the idea that, you know, his family, his wife, his kids, that was his real priority in life. And, you know, that's not always easy for a man. We feel tempted to build our resume and to, you know, have all of our accomplishments. But that was always, as long as I knew Dave, I knew that his family was number one. Well, I told you that uh, he was a senior research fellow at Caltech and, you know, he had this uh, desire to be the director of the Owens Valley Radio Observatory. Mm -hmm. And that would have been a tenured position. Uh, so that's something that he aspired to. Uh, but the senior professors at uh, Caltech in the astronomy department, they did not give him tenure. You want to know the reason why? He went home at five or six o'clock every night to be with his family. So, and they admired the fact that he was a committed family man, but they said, this is Caltech. Uh, this is a place where, you know, people put in 12 hours a day, six or seven days a week. And we can see you're not committed to that degree. Mm -hmm. And that was the only reason they gave for him not getting tenure. They all admitted he was a very accomplished scientist. They loved the fact that he had a servant spirit that he helped other astronomers. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that uh, he would only put in, uh, you know, eight, nine or 10 hours a day, and uh, he was not gonna do long observing runs. I mean, one observing run I did ran 42 days mm. on the telescope, wow. Wow. but I was single. I didn't have relationships. I could do that. Uh, but I do remember other astronomers talking. Dave doesn't do long observing runs. And where it is a week, he brings his family with him. So, yeah. Uh, but we got to see uh, one of the engineers at the Owens Valley Radio Observatory come to Christ. Uh, Dave and I would team tag. I would go up there and uh, share, then kind of give Dave, hey, next time you're up there, these are the questions you need to focus on. And, uh, you know, I shared an office with an atheist Australian astrophysicist. He had to go through my office to get to his office. And every time he walked through my office, he would ask me a question about the Bible or the Christian faith. But he always did it in the spirit of ridicule. And whatever I shared with him, uh, later that day, he would be in the coffee room, basically ridiculing everything I shared with him. And everybody would be laughing at my expense. This went on for a year and a half. Uh, but... And I remember one time I said, oh, you're no longer an atheist. What's happened to you now? He says, oh, I'm a Zen Buddhist. Mm. I said, <laughs> Zen Buddhism? Why would you consider Zen Buddhism? And he says, well, the Zen Buddhists promise salvation just like you Christians do. But it's really cheap. You don't have to make all these commitments that you have to do in Christianity. So I kept asking him questions. He would ask me questions. Then he came in and he said, Hugh, I'm not a Zen Buddhist anymore. I said, well, why? 
He says, well, they offer salvation for a really cheap price, but it doesn't deliver. Mm -hmm. So I just basically, and they wanted my money. So he says, I just, he cut that. But then he started asking me questions about fulfilled prophecy. Questions about, you know, does the Bible really accurately predict future scientific discoveries? So I could see things changing. And then there was that day where he walked down in the coffee room and my office was right above the coffee room. I could hear everything. And he said, I can no longer ridicule Hugh Ross. I can't ridicule the Bible or Christianity because last night I dedicated my life to Jesus Christ. Wow. Man. 30 minutes, all I heard was coffee being slurped. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only time those astronomers were quiet. They were in stunned <laughs> silence. Mm. And what really stunned them, uh, this astronomer was only 32 years of age. A few months later, he had a massive heart attack and died. Mm. Wow. Uh, but that was another day when they're all in stunned silence saying, you know what? He became a Christian a few months ago, and now he's gone. Mm. And they found out that he had a very serious heart condition. But it opened up a lot of doors for Dave and I, because we got them thinking, you know, do you guys ever think about the fact that you're going to die? And the problem with a lot of scientists, they're having so much fun and thrill doing their scientific research. Yeah. They never think about the important issues of life. Wow. They never consider the fact that death is around the corner. Uh, but when Ian Lockhart had died like that, that gave us opportunities we never had before. So we got to see a lot of those uh, engineers and scientists come to faith in Christ. And that was all a foundation for the future of reasons to believe. Yeah. Hugh, Hugh maybe in closing, I, I wonder if you talk a little bit about both you and Dave, your love of mathematics, your, your love for science. Um, what, you know, for those of us who are not in the STEM fields, you and Dave just had a passion about mathematics and um, you know thinking about equations uh how did that what kind of influence did that that have on the you know you're, you had this friendship but you shared that uh, that area of life together we did and i can remember even before i was a believer i was a freshman physics student university of british columbia and I remember the first physics lecture I heard, and the professor said, the University of British Columbia, it's the most gorgeous campus in the world. They had six square miles, wonderful forests surrounded the whole campus, surrounded on all sides by incredible beaches. We could see the mountains around us. Uh, and they said, you know, as beautiful as this place is, it doesn't compare with the equations of physics. And says, look around this campus, a lot of beautiful women. They don't compare with the beauty and the elegance of these equations of physics. And he says, we're going to give you a tip. It'll be help you to be successful in physics. The correct answer is always the most beautiful equation. Look for beauty in the mathematics that will guide you to the correct answer. And uh, I remember that. I held to that. And it proved to be a true proverb, is that uh, the correct description of this magnificent universe we're in 
are the mathematical equations that are the greatest beauty and the greatest elegance. But it raises another question. Why is it that we human beings are endowed with a capacity to see that symmetry, to see that beauty, to see that elegance? You don't see that in any other animal. And uh, that was actually a factor in my becoming a Christian. It's just recognize we seem to be endowed uh, with this sense of being able to acknowledge and appreciate beauty and elegance and symmetry. There's no explanation for that unless there's a God uh, that also enjoys that beauty and elegance and symmetry and created things to reflect that. So that was actually a big factor in my coming to faith in Christ. And I remember meeting Dave at Caltech and saying, you know, we need to actually, because you know, some of the Bible studies I was teaching, some of the participants had not gotten past the third grade. I remember telling Dave, look, we need to expose these people to mathematics. It's just too good. For them. He, says, he says, Hugh, uh, it's going to be a challenge with people who don't have anything past a third or fourth grade math level. But I actually brought that into one of my study groups. I taught a study for truck drivers, and uh, they're all brand new believers. Yeah. And so I introduced them to the basics of calculus. And I basically said, you know, forget about the mathematics. There's something philosophical in calculus you need to appreciate. Wow. It testifies of God. So, and Dave had that same passion. Yeah. Well, I want to encourage our listeners to uh, go on the RTB website and to read Hugh's uh, tribute. It's entitled Remembering Dave Rockstad. And uh, Hugh and Joe, we're going to miss Dave. He was yeah. a, a big part of RTB. He was a big part of this podcast. Uh, such a, a caring friend. Um, you know, I feel very grateful to have known Dave and to have worked with him the time that we have. So, well, I'll yeah, say one ahead. more thing. Sure. Because, uh, you know, a few years back, uh, Dave, I mean, I'm a, I had prostate cancer. I'm completely free of cancer right now. In Dave's case, it had metastasized, but they found a successful treatment and basically said, uh, you've got at least 10 more years. And I remember talking to Dave saying, look, I want to make those 10 years really count. Yeah. Uh, but he also said, you know, I got other health issues, immediate congestive heart failure. He says, God may take me home, but whenever he takes me home, it'll be the right time for him to take me home. Mm. And he basically said, because uh, I said, Dave, I don't want you going early. We need you here. Yeah. yeah. He says, well, the same thing will be even true of you at the right time. You're going to hand the baton to somebody else. So. That encourages me realizing, okay, God took him at just the right time, and he's going to raise up people amongst us, people in our scholar community that'll be the new Dave Rogstads. Yeah. And uh, that's one reason why we're investing so heavily in our scholar community. And by the way, as of yesterday, we passed the 180 mark. Wow. We have 180 scholars in our scholar community now. Great. And that's the future of reasons to believe. And Dave contributed mightily to the development of that scholar community. Mm -hmm. But I, I think he, Dave's right. God took him home at just the right time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Great. Thank you, Hugh. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for telling us all of those uh, 
just warm stories about Dave. And uh, Joe, I wanted to mention that when I talked about Dave on my social media site, there were a lot of people who said that uh, Dave's was their favorite RTB voice, that they just <laughs> related to his biblical points of view. And, you know, he had a lot of wisdom about uh, science. And I love it that he was a book person. We always talked about books. So yeah, a big, uh, a big and important person in all of our lives. Okay. We've been remembering David H. Rogstad, physicist, friend, husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, 1940 to 2023. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.